Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 153. Today's topic is DSA's Green New Deal, Part 7. So, DSA stands for Democratic Socialists of America. There is more than one Green New Deal. One is the proposed legislation in Congress. Also, the Green Party has a Green New Deal, and there are other organizations that have a Green New Deal. But DSA, Democratic Socialists of America, has published its own version, and we're going to continue to talk through that. So we'll be doing that in just a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. So here's the thing. It cannot be emphasized too often or too strongly that we have a crisis on our hands. Climate change represents a crisis that threatens our very existence, and it's something that is already causing significant catastrophic outcomes around the world. We have a significant portion of Americans who believe that there are serious doubts as to the reality of climate change. But the problem is not with the American people. The problem is with our leadership. And by leadership, I include political leaders, but I also include the media, and I include business leaders. So we have political leaders, business leaders, and the media that are standing squarely in the way of progress towards solving this problem. And climate change is not the only life-threatening problem, not the only life-threatening threat to our existence or to our health and prosperity. Other ones include nuclear weapons, which should never have existed in the first place. Also, the tremendous uh, decline of biodiversity, which scientists are calling the sixth great extinction on our planet. So we are in the process of the sixth great extinction. It is going on as we speak, and yet political leaders, business leaders, and the media cannot be bothered. Other threats to our very existence are not so sudden or imminent, but yet they are very real, and that is the diminishing supplies of fresh water, because of climate change, because of the misuse of water by mining, misuse of water by agribusiness, and the misuse of water by those who want to sell bottled water for retail as a commodity. Now, the scarcity of water won't wipe us all out suddenly, as the others can, but the thing is, the scarcity of water it impacts the vulnerable people the most. I like saying it's not a crisis that will wipe us all out suddenly, but it's a crisis that can cause half of the world, especially vulnerable populations, to face imminent threats to their very existence. So drought is a reality, and increasingly so with climate change. And drought is a reality increasingly so with the increasing pressure that commercial interests are placing on water supplies through corporate farming practices, through deforestation, through unsustainable development, 
and on and on. And we're, we're at a place where we have to ask, is every human life valuable or not? And are the lives of poor people valuable or not? Are the lives of non-Americans valuable or not? Are the lives of poor people in Flint, Michigan valuable or not? Are the lives of indigenous tribes at Standing Rock valuable or not? And we have political leaders, business leaders, and media uh, organizations that are showing by their actions that the lives of certain people just are not valuable. They are, in Orwell's terminology, unpersons. So we are dealing with leaders, both political leaders and business leaders, and media personalities and media organizations that are corrupt, myopic, and on the take, legally or otherwise. So it is our role to educate, organize, and agitate. Those are the three pillars of political activism. Educate, organize, and agitate. And that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station, and I need to say that anything I say about DSA's version of the Green New Deal is my opinion and not the, I'm not the official spokesperson for DSA. So we're just talking about my opinions here. And to the extent that I mention any people or organizations in this program, I'm giving my own opinions and not theirs. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. If you've enjoyed this content, I invite you to go to theclimatereport.net to find more episodes and playlists and also my blog. That's theclimatereport.net. Now, let's go to the DSA's version of the Green New Deal. This is the seventh episode, so we've taken six episodes prior to now to only deal with the DSA's version of the Green New Deal. The DSA's version of the Green New Deal has seven principles. And the purpose of these principles is to say, we, the DSA, present these principles as... And, and by presenting these principles, we're saying that we're not going to accept any imitations. We're not going to accept any cheap substitutes. And we will not support any legislation that is called a Green New Deal, but does not have these principles embedded in it and fully expressed within the legislation. So we're on guiding principle number two of the seven. And I've got my own lettering system here. So under item two, we've got items A through J. Previously, I covered A through E, but let's just read through those without comment and then, then get on to number F. Letter A, democratize control over major energy systems and resources. Nationalize fossil fuel producers to phase them out as quickly as necessary. No new fossil fuel projects can be authorized or built. Letter B. Socialize fossil-dependent industries so that they can be scaled back 
or transformed to fossil-free processes. Letter C. Establish public ownership of utilities and the electric grid and support energy cooperatives and community solar and wind projects for democratic control of the shift to 100% renewable energy. Letter D. Shift from monoculture and factory farms to diversified agroecology. Letter E. Expand municipal and state public banks, finance community land trusts, and end water privatization. Now let's go on to letter F of Principle 2, which says we will reinvest in and expand national parks. So reinvesting in and expanding national parks can take many different forms, but I've decided to point to four possibilities there. One is plant species. So we need to, we have a problem with invasive plant species, and we need to deal with this problem on public and private lands, but we need to have aggressive programs for controlling invasive plant species in our national parks and also replacing those invasive species with native species, native trees, bushes, and wildflowers that are native to the region. Secondly, we need to practice reforestation, not deforestation. These companies that get to go in and log and remove other natural resources from our public lands, they are stealing public resources. Because if these things can be sold at any price, they are sold for a song. This includes timber, this includes coal, this includes oil and natural gas. We're supposed to have a free enterprise system in the United States, but in a true free enterprise system, you have to pay what something is worth. Instead, the public is forced through, through corruption and crony capitalism, the public is forced to sell items for much less than they are worth. For example, there is a federal law related to how much people have to pay for coal, and that uh, the right to mine coal, and that federal law goes back over a hundred years, and it's some ridiculously low price, like five dollars per acre. That's not free enterprise. It is corruption, and is it is depriving the public of property that the public owns. Third item, water rights. So private businesses are allowed to take water from public lands at prices much, much less than the true value of the water. Elsewhere in the DSA's version of the Green New Deal, it says we're going to end water privatization because water is a vital resource and should not be sold to the highest bidder. The idea that something vital like water should be sold to the highest bidder stems from something that I call the free market fraud or the free market fairy tale. Market forces exist and market forces are a reality, but free market ideology is just that. It's an ideology that wants to pass itself off as science, but it's an ideology 
that allows for a great deal of corruption, not least of all the theft of public resources. And lastly on the list of how we are going to reinvest in and expand national parks, I've already touched on this, but number four is mineral rights. So one question is whether any coal or oil or natural gas should be extracted from public lands. That's a valid and legitimate question, but there is no question that coal and oil and natural gas are extracted from public lands at such low prices that it re- represents a threat of, I mean, it, it represents a theft of public goods. Letter G under item 2 of the DSA's Green New Deal, we will vastly expand national forests, grasslands, and wildlife preserves to enable natural carbon capture. So that's great. So natural, key, key term, natural carbon capture is like this. When a tree grows, then it is naturally absorbing carbon from the atmosphere as part of the process of photosynthesis. So in photosynthesis, the leaves of the tree absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and we need that. And then what it does, ultimately, is that it takes that carbon and puts it into the ground. When you put carbon into the ground, it creates a rich soil. So the farming methods that we have now deplete the soil. And on a worldwide basis, we need to be planting trees that will enrich the soil. Also, there, you know, not just tree, like we're, we're in Kentucky, so Kentucky wants to be a forest. Trees grow naturally in Kentucky. But on the Great Plains, the more natural ecosystem is a prairie where you don't have as many trees but you have more grasslands and by the same token that grassland if you allow it to grow naturally with native plant species then what it does is it absorbs carbon from the atmosphere and puts it into the ground making a rich soil letter h we will preserve public lands for future generations. That's another issue that comes up with what I call the free market fairy tale or the free market fraud. The free market ideology says that the way to enrich everybody is to get the government out of the way and let people do business on their own terms and the way according to free market theory this process maximizes the wealth of the community. Well, that theory has a number of profound flaws, one of which is that the only people who get to participate in the free market economy are people with money. People who have little or no money don't get to participate in that economy, and people who have no money include future generations. So here we are humming along with our free market ideology in which future generations do not participate in the decision-making process and the future generations are robbed of resources that are rightfully theirs. Future generations have a right to a habitable planet. They have a right to a manageable climate. Future generations have a right to the biodiversity that we enjoy. 
Future generations have a right to clean water. Future generations have a right to a healthy supply of topsoil. And I have just named five or six resources that we are depriving future generations of. And I said we, but it's not really you and me. It is a corrupt political system and a corrupt economic system. And it is a media that cannot be bothered to tell the truth. Letter I in the list. We will encourage replacement of individually owned vehicles and short-haul air travel with expanded regional and high-speed electric rail, free public transit, shared vehicles, bicycles, and other non-fossil fuel modes of transportation in ways that benefit disadvantaged communities. So, a key phrase here is we will encourage replacement of individually owned vehicles. So, it doesn't mean we have to get rid of all cars, but I hope that we would be willing to do that if that's what it took to preserve our planet for future generations. We should not be apologizing to people who want to destroy our planet's resources for the sake of a lifestyle or for the sake of an ideology. But speaking strictly for Hart Hagen, and this may sound heavy-handed, but I don't think it is. I think it's reasonable. Speaking for Hart Hagen, I would like to see an immediate freeze on the manufacture of new vehicles with internal combustion engines. And here's why I say that. Well, for one thing, scientists tell us that we have 10 years to completely decarbonize the economy Otherwise, we face a future that is very dangerous and uncertain. So if we put an immediate moratorium on the manufacture of new internal combustion vehicles, it doesn't mean we would be rid of them right away. It means we wouldn't have any new ones. There is no reason for the big three automakers to be churning out more and more and more new cars like there's no tomorrow. We need to get used to the idea of driving used cars, and we need to get used to the idea of driving electric cars, and we need to get used to the idea of fewer six-passenger automobiles being on the road. We don't need to be widening our highways. That's an, that's an example of building more fossil fuel infrastructure when exactly what we need is less fossil fuel infrastructure. Another key phrase here is we will reduce short-haul air travel and replace it with expanded regional and high-speed electric rail, free public transit, etc. Another thing we don't need to apologize for, we don't need to apologize for favoring a reduction in air travel, in fact a steep reduction in air travel. So if we decided to eliminate 80% of air travel in the next three or four years, then what would we eliminate and what would be left over? So if we're going to eliminate the air travel that has the least benefit and only keep the air travel that has the most benefit, what would we eliminate and what would we be left with? We would eliminate air travel what they're calling here short-haul air travel. I've said in previous episodes, there's no reason for us to be flying from Louisville to Atlanta, from Louisville to Chicago, from Chicago to New York, 
from Atlanta to Houston. There is no reason for us to be taking the plane to places where the train would be nearly as fast. We would be more well served. I mean, the highest benefit air travel that is not so easily replaced is, for one thing, uh, intercontinental air travel. Travel from North America to Europe, North America to Asia, places where there is an ocean in between and you can't put a train over the ocean yet. So the short-haul air travel would be the first to be phased out. Also, any air travel, I mean, if Harthagen were king, which I'm not, thankfully we live in a the ideal is democracy, not autocracy. But if I were king, I would immediately defund the military and I would provide military employees with an easy transition to other industries, industries that we need, such as the manufacture and deployment of solar panels and wind, wind uh, turbines, the deployment of the state-of-the-art energy grid that we need, the deployment of mass transit, And that means we ground all military planes immediately. The military, all due respect to the people who are in the military, people who join the military do so because they need a job with benefits. If people are joining the military out of a sense of duty, we need to talk. If people are joining the military because they think that they're keeping us safe, we need to talk. If people are joining the military because it's supposed to have some positive effect on the world, we need to talk. So we need to immediately ground all military planes, and we need to immediately close all of the 800 military bases worldwide. It also says here that we need high-speed electric rail. Did you know that when we spend a million dollars on mass transit, it creates 22 jobs, as opposed to spending oil, spending money on fossil fuel or military, which every million dollars only creates three to five jobs. When we spend money on mass transit and on renewable energy, we don't just create jobs, we create whole new industries. We also create technologies. The United States could be a world leader in technology related to mass transit. The United States could be a world leader in technology related to solar energy and wind energy. Because the secret is that government spending is needed in order to create technology. Private enterprise does very little in the scale of things to create new technologies. Most new technologies are a result of government spending, not the private enterprise system. It says here we need free public transit. Yes, free public transit. Because for one thing, why would public transit not be free? We need a rapid transition where we transition away from six-passenger automobiles and a transition away from air travel. So that's one reason to make uh, public transit free. And some people might think, oh, that's going to hurt the economy. No, it's not, because whatever people don't spend on transportation, they're going to spend in other things. Think about it. 90% of what we spend on transportation is not part of the local economy. 
when you spend money on transportation, you're spending money, you're, you're sending money out of your local economy to the big auto manufacturers who are corrupt, and you're sending money out of the local economy to fossil fuel companies who are corrupt and destructive, and there's also insurance. You have to insure your car, so you're sending money to out-of-town insurance companies to insure your car. So any money that is not spent on six-passenger automobiles, which averages about eight to $10,000 a year, every person who has an automobile spends typically eight to $10,000 per year. So eight to ten thousand dollars per year will be spent in the local economy if we free people up from having to spend eight to ten thousand dollars per year on six passenger automobiles. Another thing it says here is we're going to encourage shared vehicles. So I heard some stats the other day. These stats might be a little off, but not by much. There's something on the order of two hundred and eighty million vehicles in America. And yet the average vehicle is only used 5% of the time. So on average, at any given time, only 5% of the vehicles are on the road. We could have apps and technological platforms via the internet that help people share vehicles. And this is the kind of thing that the government could help, but as long as government is owned by the oil companies and the auto companies, then government is not going to get too excited about vehicle sharing. But we need to decide, is our government going to operate for public benefit or for private benefit? Is government going to serve the vast majority of people or is government going to serve a small minority of the very richest people? Also here it mentions bicycles. So bicycles and walking are things that many, if not most, able-bodied people would be eager to do more of if we had the infrastructure for it. Sometimes it's called active transportation. On most of our highways and city streets, bicycles are considered a nuisance by most motorists. But we need infrastructure that favors bicycling and walking. We even have the technology now that it doesn't have to be your own bicycle. There are places in Louisville and places in Chicago and no doubt many other cities where you can borrow or rent a bicycle or a motor scooter. And we need to encourage that kind of transportation. The benefits include the more biking and walking you do, it, it's healthy. Also, we will have streets that are not as noisy or dangerous or polluted. And the last phrase of this paragraph says in so many words, we will do all of this in ways that benefit disadvantaged communities. So why would we go out of our way to benefit disadvantaged communities? Well, one question is, why would we not go out of our way to benefit disadvantaged communities? We're taught in American culture that rugged individualism is the American way. Maybe that's why it's no coincidence that the United States has more poverty per capita than any other of the industrialized countries. 
I've got about another minute and I want to leave you with something to think about. The items we've described here represent a dramatic departure from business as usual. But what we need in America and around the world is a dramatic departure from business as usual. What I've described is something that will benefit the vast majority of Americans and people around the world. The people who will have to give up something include the very rich, certainly the top 1%, but I would argue that we are creating a world that is better for everyone. If we are not willing to create a world that is better for everyone, then we need to re-examine our priorities. But the problem is not with the priorities of the American people. The problem is with a corrupt leadership in government, in business, and in media. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Hope you'll come back soon. Bye now.